And then I made a sort of a deal with myself of like, well, get and take a shower. Well, fuck this. They're not going to run me out of this club in tears. I don't know what it is, you know, chasing waitresses around. I didn't know it was, it was like girls, alcohol. Like, it's great to be in a hotel room at 10.30 at night with the lights on in pajamas. It's fucking great. But all of a sudden, you love him. It's bullshit. Happy holidays and welcome to In the Springs, episode number 75. I'm your host, Ryan Lowry. On today's show, I sit down with New York City-based stand-up comedy veteran, the very funny Mr. Paul Hooper. This episode was recorded on December 11th at the legendary Looney's Comedy Corner right here in Colorado Springs. I caught up with Paul during his headlining weekend run at the club. We talk about Paul's stand-up comedy career as well as his comedy life in New York City. Without further ado, please sit back and enjoy because stand-up comedian Paul Hooper is in the Springs. Or I should not chew gum. That's what I should not do. My, my, tens, of, my tens of listeners will be <laughs> mortified to hear you chewing gum. Tuck it, my gum. <laughs> Tucking it down. Yeah. Gums. Take, take your time. Take your time. This episode sponsored by gum. All right, Paul Hooper. Yeah, man. We are doing this thing. All right. All right. So you, sir, are in the springs here at uh, the lovely Looney's Comedy Corner. Yeah. And I uh, understand this is not your first time through here. Been here a few times, yeah. It's like, I don't know, I mean, like the last five years in a row, and I did it uh, a couple times before that, way back, way back. Gotcha. Early 2000s. Now, you're based out of uh, New York City. Yeah. We're a long way from New York City. How did you, <laughs> and why are you here? How did you get connected with this club, and, and why make this trek? I love spreading it out. You know, I like doing stuff. I mean, I started comedy on, in North Carolina, on, you know, in the southeast and then I moved to New York five years ago. So a lot of my stuff is East Coast and then sort of Midwest. And then I get out West uh, like four or five times a year. Gotcha. But I like, I mean, I'll go out as far out as I can because I even like leaving the country. Because I love travel. So I'm good with that, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm spending a little more time at home now. I'm not like on the road 40-something weeks a year like I was a while back. But I'm still out there 30 weeks. So I just like new places, like new landscape. I still like that. For a sort of a curmudgeon guy travel is still exciting to me. <laughs> right, I'm like right. the quest of getting all 50 states and performing in them, getting more passport stamps. It's all very important to me. And like seeing new things, yeah. I love it so much. So how far on you, uh, are you on the 50-state goal? 43, I think, is the count. Nice. And uh, so I have to like perform there, sleep there. The criteria is like sleep there, <laughs> eat there. You have to not do it. Just, you have to spend not just a layover in Alaska. Doesn't count. Gotcha. No, it's one of those things you have to spend like 24 hours there and really live it. Yeah. And uh, so that's the way I do it. And then, so 43, I'm sort of stuck at 43. Gotcha. So, Paul, let's go back to the beginning. You're uh, from uh, North Carolina. Right. And you started your comedy career down there. Yeah, in Charlotte. And, and so when, when was your first time on stage as a stand-up comedian? Uh, I don't remember the exact date. February 17th or 18th, one of those two, uh, 1998. And it's what, a chunk of time. And what was the motivation to get on stage that first time and grab a mic? It was one of those things. It was a childhood dream. Started in like in fourth grade. And then, so I just sort of kicked it around. But I was always a bashful kid. 
and I uh, didn't like public speaking, couldn't do that, you know, any kind of book report or anything in front of the class gave me a knot in the stomach. So I never really believed I could. And then as you graduate high school and you're an adult and you realize like, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want, then the panic sets in of what to do. Go to college, go in the military, dead-end jobs, and had no other dream. And then, so for three or four years, I just was aimless. Trying, I signed up for the military, I looked at college, but I'd screwed up my high school so bad that I didn't really have a chance at doing anything great. I think, you know, <laughs> academically. And then uh, the dead-end jobs didn't interest me. Nothing really interested me. Even if my grades had been perfect, I didn't want to be a doctor or a law. I didn't want to be any of that. Yeah. That didn't sound great. But so uh, the dream was still in my head. It was the only thing that stayed in there. It was consistent. And then I just finally got the nerve at 22 years old to just get up and just did it and just never stopped. Now, when you say you had that pull back in fourth grade, was that just sort of the the idea of kind of having the spotlight on you or what was it? Because a fourth grader probably didn't have too much exposure to stand-up comedy, I wouldn't think. Right, but. it wasn't even stand-up back then. I just love comedy shows. Gotcha. You know, it's like Carson, you watch that kind of stuff or any kind of sitcom at the time. And then uh, there was a kid in my fourth grade class, which I always tell the story, that he was he thought I was funny. And even though I was a bashful kid, when we would go to lunch, I would, like, make him laugh. And then he always compared me to Tim Conway, which I still don't understand. I, wasn't, I don't think I was a nine-year-old Tim Conway. Right, I don't think right. I was on that level. Were you, like, shuffling around? And <laughs> yeah. I don't think. And so he was like, I remember, this is corny, and I've told this story many times, but he did it, so it's not on me. As at the end of the last day of school, he's like, let's write on the blackboard, let's, like, a contract to say we'll be comedians when we grow up. And I'm like, all right, I'll sign this. Oh, you got to be kidding me. That's a yeah. beautiful story. And he's a firefighter, last I heard, and I'm a comic. No kidding. So he sort of planted the seed. And then other people, like my cousins who were older than me, um, they would laugh at my stuff. And then you learn as a kid, like, you can just make your friends laugh. And so, but he was the first one that really, like, oh, you could do this. You could become a comedian when you're an adult. Yeah. And that just sort of followed me through childhood and my teens, where I'm like, ah, maybe that's a thing. And then every group of friends, I would sort of, someone might mention it, of like, you know, be a comic yeah and it's so it was uh, this thing that just, just followed me i'm like all right so so 22 year old paul hooper walks up on uh on stage for the first time where what was the what was the scene and and what was the experience like for you it was terrifying it's one of the scariest days of my life right so it was i remember to this day i remember um what i did that day and the times of it i had a bulldog at the time and i remember taking that bulldog on a walk in the afternoon and i go i can't do this I remember it was never, it was just nonstop fear, terror, the whole day from the time I woke up. I don't know how I slept the night before. Yeah. And I just was mortified. And then I made a sort of a deal with myself of like, well, get and take a shower and then get in the car. <laughs> just and baby steps all the way to the. Leaving your place, you know, spots where you could back out. And then I got myself to the club. You can leave. You know, wait and see how the show goes, how the crowd is before yeah. you go up. And I just called my name and I went up and it was just a blur or like a dream state. But I remember getting laughs in the first two minutes. I was supposed to do five minutes and then I, I probably did two and a half. And I closed on a joke that I wrote like the day before. And the guys at the club were like, don't do that joke. It's not done or it's not funny. And I'm like, no, no. I didn't understand you need to have a strong closer. <laughs> right. So for two minutes, I think I did well. And for the last 40 seconds, I probably bombed. Yeah. But it was so exhilarating in the first part, the laughs that I did get, that it didn't matter. Yeah. And I didn't understand anything about comedy, so it didn't matter that that fizzled out. I was already had so much adrenaline going that I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. Now, this sounds kind of cliched, but were you hooked that at that moment? 
Uh, I don't think it was Hook there. I mean, that was an exhilarating night, but it was then uh, the next few times. And that was like stacked with people that were supportive because it came out of some comedy workshop bullshit. And it was... Uh, so they were like, it was a really supportive crowd, so you never get an accurate read, I don't think. And the next five times I went on stage was, you know, just a normal crowd who doesn't care. Yeah. And I don't know, I think I bombed four or five times, and I remember the seventh time on stage was just another normal crowd, and I felt like I did my five minutes, and it worked that time. And that's the time I was hooked. Gotcha. Because it was like, a few of us went out before the regular show, and I remember the feature act that night, getting Reno Collier, was really nice to me. So I was like, oh, a pro, thought I had a good set. And we went out drinking and, you know, yeah, it was sort of this like welcome to the club type thing or, you know, a pat on the back. And I was like, that was the one, the seventh time on stage I was hooked. I'm like, I'm not stopping this. Well, one thing that comes up a lot when I talk to comics that, that come through loonies is oftentimes that first time on stage is a nightmare or the second, third or fourth or fifth time on stage is a nightmare. And yet you keep getting on stage. Are you able to kind of put your finger on okay, I did decent my first time up. Next two or three times wasn't great, but I'm going to keep doing this. Are you able to kind of articulate the drive that would that would possess you to get up on stage in front of strangers? Yeah, I don't know, but as an introvert, you know, I, I always question it. And what kept me going through that, other than the love of like comedy, and then I really wanted to do it, is that you see other people having bad sets that are amateurs and how they handle it poorly i mean i saw you know those times when i was bombing my second or third or fourth time i remember there was a kid i'll never remember his name who just was crying after he bombed and you just realize how tough what what it is yeah and you're like handle it better than that and survive it and then the stubborn part of me is like well fuck this they're not going to run me out of this club in tears (laughs) i will i will kick you know i'll be hard-headed and uh i will just finally i stay in it yeah. To spite whoever. Yeah. And so that's what kept me going, is that everyone's sort of falling apart. You don't know what you're doing, and you're all terrified. <laughs> yeah. Some people can poker face it. Others just start crying in the parking lot. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm terrified, but whatever. And I was able to, I was a big drinker at the time. I was new to drinking because I was 22, but my love of alcohol came at the same time my love of comedy sort of kicked in or... Good the timing. comedy career, yeah. <laughs> they went hand in hand. And then so I would do that. Like when I was scared to get to the club, I started making friends with some of the open micers and amateurs. And like I remember going, oh, the hangout before the show is fun. And I can have two or three beers. And the beers helped and got me there. And I started to enjoy that. And uh, then I just, I don't know, I just kept showing up. I don't know because yeah. I'd never really stuck with anything else. But I got through that. And then after the seventh time, you know, there's still rough sets. Sure, There's sure. always that. Yeah. There's all, you're always going to bomb or get blindsided with something you haven't seen before. Now, at what point in your career, you know, from that first time on stage, age 22 until now, at what point were you able to kind of look at yourself and say, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian. This is what I do. At what point was that line in the sand sort of drawn for you that this is how I'm going to make my way? Make my living like totally committed to it as a, like a, a job or as a... right. This is my life. Uh, I don't know when that kicked in because it was like I was so far in really fast. After the first few times, like I quit whatever dead-end job. I think I worked at an irrigation company. And then I was just like, and this was an accident. I wasn't thinking. I was just like, uh, I asked the club. I was just like, hey, do you have anything open? I'll work at the club. I'm like, this is what I love. I should be near it. And they're like, you can work at the front desk. So within a few weeks of doing comedy, I was working the front desk, which was a great thing. 
because I got to see every show. I got free booze, and I just got to watch every show Tuesday through Sunday. Yeah. So I'd take my staff shirt off, and just as soon as I was done counting money and tickets, that I would just go back and watch the shows. I mean, you know, six days a week. And so I was in at that point. I wasn't a working comic or anything, but I got to host when someone didn't show up. I got to do guest spots when they needed time added to the show. I got all these things that I didn't know going in. Like It was a brilliant move of just like be there, yeah. be around it. Was so, that helpful, do you think, kind of seeing you know behind the curtain as far as not just seeing other comedians, but seeing the mechanics of a club and how to run a good show and what different... You know, different audiences were at different times of the week and different times of the night and that sort of thing. Did that kind of seep in as well? Yeah, you start to see, uh, yeah, you see all the sort of framework of a comedy show and then you learned. And then I also got to see, with working the front desk and being there, sometimes sleeping at the club, if we got too drunk and all kinds of things. It's like, I would see everyone from the open micers that would call to try to get spots or people who were asking about getting into open mic to celebrities that came in. After they took them to morning radio and they were waiting to go to the hotel, they'd just be standing in the lobby and I could sort of ask them questions <laughs> and make them miserable. Yeah. And so everyone in between, every working comic, every road comic that came through stood in that lobby. Or they were there for some time when they weren't on stage and so I was just like studying the whole thing. Yeah. I was captivated. It was fascinating. So, uh, yeah, I learned every aspect of comedy really fast in like two years. So I feel like I was in it before I even made a living on the road. So by the time I went on the road... I already knew sort of what was going on. It yeah. was just new towns, and the travel was sort of scary and exciting. But I already knew how a comedy club worked. I'd met a lot of the people before, you know. Right, right. So, so the creative process for you, once you did get to that point in your career where you were going on the road and doing clubs outside of your hometown, or were you writing material, or were you kind of a bullet point kind of guy, and you'd go up on stage and work things out, or what was that process like for you, either then or now, or has it changed at all for you over the years? It's totally changed now. It all changed with, like, first of all, I was young, I didn't know what I was doing, and then I was drunk a lot, because <laughs> it was this, like, trying to be some poor man's rock star thing. I didn't know. I'd been in three states before I did comedy. Right. And I'm going to all these new states, and people give me free booze. I don't know what it is, you know, chasing waitresses around. I didn't know it was, always, it was just like girls, alcohol, and comedy was new. It was all, and travel was new. It was all so exciting. So, yeah. no, I wasn't sitting down with pen and paper <laughs> when I was 26 years old. Yeah. No. It was like I would think of an idea in a hotel room or I would think of it on stage and do it. It was a lot of tags. I think I used to, in my early days, come up with a, I get a setup and a punchline and just, just tag it. I tag the shit of it. <laughs> I had a bit one time that went about 12 minutes long because I just kept tagging. And right. to me, that's writing. Yeah, yeah. You're, like, you're not coming up with new ideas. You're just extending this and making that one bigger. But that's the way I did it. And it was sort of lazy, and I didn't put enough work into it. But I got by, and I was putting enough bits on stage, and I got the set dialed in. And I wasn't doing everything word for word, year after year, or anything like that. Sure. But I wasn't writing enough. And then uh, with sobriety, which came at like 30 years old, almost 31, then I was like, oh, I need to pay more attention to the actual craft of comedy and like work harder the business side and the sort of creative side and so i then i started breaking out notebooks and uh set list became more important and then the pressure put the pressure on myself to like you need to come up with a new joke it's been a couple weeks since you've had a new thought so yeah say something new and so that started and so that's been almost nine or ten years and so i still but it's still now i have sort of a new i don't write in notebooks i'm writing my phone now but I do still keep that pressure on of like, you need something new. Like, come to Colorado Springs, you need two or three new things going in. They don't yeah. have to, you're not going to be four minute bits, but right, right. a tagline here, 
a premise, a new premise you can sort of throw in or, you know, push it in there. And if it, if it works, great. I mean, yeah. nothing too big, so you don't stall out the entire set. But, yeah, always, like, and you go through these phases of, like, where you're stuck with things. But, yeah, you come out of it and you get, like, two or three ideas. It comes in, like, a burst of, like, but always now, like, paying attention to, like, all right, you haven't written. You need a new idea. Yeah. You need to drop that. You know, switch up the order. Do something. Yeah, it's the way I do it now. But I don't ever, I still don't sit down and write, just stare at paper all day. Yeah. I don't. So like you said, when you were in your 20s and, and the whole environment and experience was new and kind of the late nights and the drinking and, you know, partying or whatever that was, at what point did you go, yeah, this this isn't sustainable. I got to I gotta really figure out what the hell I'm doing. Because I, I think that that cycle is true for a lot of entertainers where you, you know, like you said, it's your first time out of your, your home state maybe, or whatever it is. And, and you're being treated, you know, to some degree like celebrity free drinks and people want to talk to you and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a maturity thing on your part to, to recognize that, yeah, this is not going to end well if I keep going right. down this road. Well, mine went to the extreme of like, I was forced. It was like prison, die, quit you know or the options because i was taking that so i don't know i think i might i had easier access because of comedy to booze and you know you can stay out all night and still do your job and get away with it but i mean i think i was gonna be an alcoholic if i was an electrician or any other job i just loved alcohol so much and wanted to kill myself with it and so it got to that point where the last six months of my drinking were just a downward spiral a lot of it wasn't predictable i do have some original stories from there that i'm i'm not gonna say i'm proud of them but i did some different weird stuff and uh, it just got, it crescendoed to a point where you're like, the people in comedy weren't going to book me anymore because the late shows were getting dicey. I was like getting too drunk. I was yeah. becoming a liability. And then um, I knew, you know, physically I was falling apart. All those, you know, it was dark days. So it got to a point. And I finally, you know, got arrested a couple times, a DUI and a prank called 911 and a blackout. You know, so that's in jail for, I mean, fairly minor stuff, but sure. twice in six months. And then the second time, you know, I had spent two days in an orange jumpsuit. And you're like, I'm glad they leave the mirrors in jail because you're like, I'm in an orange V-neck and this is like becoming a pattern. I'm yeah. becoming a piece of shit. And it jar- it was jarring. And I'm like, that's it. I'm out. And I just got out of jail two days later and never drank again. No kidding. It was enough. It scared me. And I talked to a couple people in jail and I just listened to their story. And I'm like, no, this can't be it. It can't just be that... I love alcohol so much that it defines me. I always found that, like, when people just drink their whole lives, I'm like, oh, he just had to have a bottle. Right, right, all right. The, for 50 years, he couldn't cope. Yeah. I'm like, you got to be stronger than that. Yeah. There's got to be another level to it. And so I just turned my back, and then the shows got better. I wrote more. Now, I had more there, money, you know? And, was there ever concern when you did stop drinking that that would change who you were on stage? Because you'd already built right. material and a persona and and, you know, kind of a... Um, an act yeah. and so once you s- t- took the alcohol out of the equation was there any concern that holy shit who's going to get on stage tonight yeah it was uh, I wasn't worried about how I feel on stage because I'd done enough shows sober sure. there were times I went on stage with one beer in me or some I got there late and didn't get a beer and just had to run up I'd done comedy sober or without a buzz or slightly buzzed so I knew how to do that um, and then the the bits changed because I had to write new stuff. It was like some of the stuff is disingenuous when you're not. Right. Like, I'm drinking, I'm going out, I'm doing this and that. And it's not everything's a party. So that slowly evolved. And luckily, I wrote a couple jokes really quick about not drinking. And then just purged sort of the old drinking jokes. And so I don't remember that being a hard transition, nice. honestly. 
And it, I remember it being easier than what I thought. I was scared about how am I going to cope with going to back to an empty hotel room by myself when I'm used to going out till 5 a.m. How do you go back? And then I just was like, oh, you just do crossword puzzles and you read and you call friends and you feel good the next day right. and you have money and yeah. you eat candy and it's fine. <laughs> and I was like, I enjoyed the quiet of a hotel room. Like, it's great to be in a hotel room at 1030 at night with the lights on in pajamas. Right, it's fucking right. great. Because <laughs> my noise... Just my, living the dream. My 20s were so noisy yeah. that it was like a relief that it just wasn't strip club music pumping in my head <laughs> right. trying to score drugs with rednecks yelling in the background for seven hours every night. You're oh, like, oh, God. this is peaceful. This is great. I've had enough excitement. I've had enough noise. Yeah. And so it was like, I'm done. This is, this is new and great, you know? Well, this is kind of a weird segue into my next question. So you went from North Carolina to New York City, right. which I think there's probably a lot of noise there. Sure. And so what was that? Not only what was that transition like for you personally and professionally, but, but why? Um, it was just the transition is like you got to step up at some point and I moved late in the game, I guess. You know, I was already like, I don't know how many years in a comedy, over a decade when I moved. And um, I just had to get my life together after that, you know, when I sobered up. And it took a bit before I could make the move to New York or L.A. And I feel like you got to go through one of those cities for those opportunities. And I almost went to L.A., chose New York at the last minute. A buddy of mine talked me into it and uh, went there. And the first two years are grueling. Like Some of the shows were fun, but just that city was tough on me. And now I'm really starting to enjoy like being there. You know, it'll never be my favorite city in the world. It will never be. Yeah. But, and I don't want to live there the rest of my life, but I understand the importance of it and I'm comfortable there now. It didn't scare me or intimidate me, but it was important to go. And it's also important to go as a comic to realize that, I don't even think it's a starting over thing, just to realize how many people are competing. I don't know if competing is the wrong word, but how many people are in this and are serious about it and then how much you need to prove yourself and how hard you need to work. Because it's not just you sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina, or pick a town, a smaller town. Sure, sure. You need to go to those cities and realize like what it's going to take. Yeah. And the level of talent that's there. And it's a, like a new level of pressure and work up there. And yeah, it's already a grueling city. So it was important. But the first two years, yeah, it's excruciating. So and, after you've been there for a while, do you feel like you can sort of identify the people who are in it and then the people who are just kind of checking it out, but they'll be gone within six months? You know, that, that type yeah. of thing? I don't know if I can tell. I mean, it's like, there's so many comics come, and that's the thing about the New York scene. You can never get a feel for it. I feel like if you move to any other city, except for maybe L.A., where everybody's trying to make it to, is any other city, you can, even if there's 200 people or 100 people doing it, you're going to meet them. New York, there's just an influx of comics a few times a year. They just go to these rooms, and there's just 20 new people standing in the back open micers from not just this country, from all over the world. You forget people from all over the world that 10 Canadian comics moved and an Australian comic and a British comic and, did it and all those and then everyone else. And so, um, yeah, you see some wash out. You forget, like, oh, what happened to that person? They're like, oh, they moved home. But yeah. it's, there's so many people you can't keep track of it. You cannot keep track of yeah. who left and who's still here unless you're close friends with them. Well, this, this is going to sound cynical, and I certainly don't mean it that way, but h how do you get heard in New York? You know, like, how does Paul Hooper get heard in New, in New York City? What, or what does that even, does that question make sense? That's, like recognized? Or yeah, exactly. Like yeah, like, it, it, I think maybe recognition might be the only thing I can kind of put my finger on. When you're there among 200, 300, 400 
comedians that are working just as hard. How, how do you get recognized in New York City? I, it's, you just have to prove yourself on stage over and over and over again. And I think the comics are good in the sense that if uh, they like you, like you can sort of they'll help you along. You make friends, you make more friends, and then people sort of you get, people have to respect what you do. So I feel like originality and being really funny. If you just really grind, you can get through all that. I mean, it's 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 tough, but and it's not something that you feel like everyone in the city knows you. I mean, you almost have to be a famous person before everyone knows who you are. Everyone right. else is on this level of like, there's so many tears to it. But um, as far as I can tell, and the successful people that I see is the work ethic, work ethic on the comics that are there. They're just doing everything. They're doing club sets. They're doing indie shows. They're leaving the country. They're doing festivals. They're coming to Colorado. And those are the successful... Com- and they're writing their ass off and they're doing it seven days a week. And it's impressive. The ones that are rising, that's yeah. the common thread I see in all of them. Of just being fucking relentless with the talent sure. and everything else. But I see that and it's like, you got to step it up there. Because the talented people have a work ethic on them and it's serious. And yeah. so they're doing everything. They're flying back from across the country and doing sets that night and then they're gone in three days or they're doing multiple sets a night yeah. and podcast social media is stuff you can't even keep up with and so that's like uh, it was a nice kick in the ass and uh, that I think like it makes us better being there but it's uh, I don't know I mean I always think like I want to just stay there because now I've like committed to it and I do think it's making me a better comic so yeah. if I don't have some uh, TV show to show for it some shiny career success or anything or right, I'm right. not famous than if you're still making me a better comic it's worth staying well i was just going to say i think a lot of people certainly from outside of the stand-up comedy world they do view you know the sitcom or the the conan appearance or the fallon appearance or whatever as success but i think people who are in comedy understand that that's a very small slice of success you can be a successful comedian and nobody knows your name do you, yeah do you think that that's accurate yeah it's true yeah you can make a living i know so many comics that don't have those things that are super funny people that hopefully they get those things too but um yeah absolutely i believe if you make a living doing comedy then and you're doing original good work and you continue to write then you are a success i do believe that yeah i don't think it's all that you have to have a tv show i don't know if i even dream of having a tv show it's never been my dream my dream is just sell more tickets on the road and then more people show up to colorado springs or cleveland or tampa and then the next year or so i come back and surprise them with new stuff or make them laugh again that's the only dream i want to until i have a you know congestive heart failure that's all <laughs> i want to do right, so whatever right. age that comes yeah that's what i want to do but you have to sort of go through tv to get the exposure still unless you do something online that's insane but uh you know i don't know that's what i want to do but of course i would do if you know, take whatever TV I could get. Right, right. But I think you're a success if if you're doing comedy. If you're doing good work and you're making a living, yes. Even if you're doing good work, you're not making a living. If you're doing like great stuff creatively, you're a success. Yeah. I think. Is that the answer? Did I answer that directly? It wasn't too vague. No, no, no. I, I really believe it. I yeah. don't want to be corny or anything. I, I think that's perfect because I do think that again, you know, from people outside of the industry, whether it's stand up or music or acting whatever it is they've got this idea of success that you've you've got to be on tv or you've got to have an award on your shelf but behind that there's 99.9 percent of the people in that industry that are making a living and and like you said producing good work that that i think it's kind of overshadowed by that that perception that success is this little teeny tiny slice of of the pie 
Right, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I just think if you're doing great work on stage and you keep, like, striving to do that, then, yeah, no matter what you have, you don't have to be a millionaire or have a, a TV show or the, maybe the industry doesn't recognize you yet or ever. Right. But you're still great and a success, I think. I yeah. still, like, make sure I pay attention to that. I'm very conscious of that. They're like, I don't, I never, and I'm happy that I never think, I don't treat people differently because, oh, you got a new TV show, so this is like, this is, I still just watch a comic, whether they're, I, they're famous or not, and go, oh, is that good? Or right. like, that makes me laugh. I try to keep that perspective because, you know, I've seen it happen for friends where they get something and then everybody's attitude changes for them. And I'm like, he was doing that joke six months ago. Right. He was amazing six months ago. Why the fuck are you showing up all of a sudden? Yeah. He's the best thing ever now. He did that. You saw him do that joke five months ago. <laughs> but all of a sudden, yeah. you love him. Yeah. It's bullshit. <laughs> You know, I understand. I'm happy for him too. Yeah. I want his career, but it doesn't. You should just judge them and not be looking at a comic going, "He's been on TBS. He's been on Nickelodeon." <laughs> yeah. My God, yeah, like, no, what's he saying? It's funny. It's funny. Who cares? Right, right. I don't know, and uh, so I don't know how to view it. With that. And I try to keep it, and that's the way I try to look at it. It's just not being impressed by that. I'm happy that people get like things. I would like to have things too. Sure, and tons of money. And stuff like that, but uh, I don't know. I, I definitely not the starstruck thing. Of right. Like, it's just like, great. I just hope really great comics get famous, is all you hope. And yeah. like, so I pull for people like that, and I pull for comics that are great to get big things. That's all I want. I think that's know? a great sentiment. That's all. It's what I pull for. It's like, I just like seeing it done at the highest level of like, that's the person who's setting the bar for all of us. They're doing amazing. It's good. They need everything. Give them everything. Yeah. You know? And that's what we should be striving for. So that's the way I try to keep it that way. And so it's like, but it's hard in those cities, you know, like New York and LA, I think where the like, industry's there. So you're very conscious of who's getting what, you know, like the opportunities are there. And so, um, but, you know, you just try to do that stuff too. So there's a business side, but I still just want to go, that's funny. And I love to be like still surprised by an idea. Yeah. I love with my jaded self that you stand in the back of the room and then some comic just spins an idea and you're like, holy shit, that's fucking amazing. Right, I right. love it. I love it to this day. I love being like shocked or surprised and going, ah, that's an incredible twist. Yeah. It's the best. Nice, man. Well, that's good, that's good to hear that that level of excitement and and, and authenticity in, in what you're doing and, and, and what you continue to do. So I think that's very cool. Yeah, I just want to, I just want to, that's all I do. And I need to like step it up. And I just want, yeah, I just want to write better stuff. Yeah. I just want to write better stuff and make it funnier. That's about it. I try nice. to keep that in mind. Nice. And hold the business side of it together too. <laughs> just, just stay in it. Well, Paul Hooper, I appreciate you taking the time out, man. Uh, just one last thing before I cut you loose. What are you looking forward to? Uh, wrapping up 2015, heading to 2016. Anything on the immediate horizon that you're excited about or... Sure. This, um, I got a few gigs that I'm really like looking forward to next week. This just happened. I'm like opening for David Tell in uh, Long Island at Governor's Comedy Club. Name so, rings a bell. Yeah, he's so great. <laughs> so that's one of the, like, it's going to be, you know, it's amazing to watch him work. Nice. And so I'm doing that next Friday, December 18th, Governor's in Long Island. And then, um, then after that, I go to Atlanta, Punchline right after Christmas, and then Key West for a couple days after that. Nice. And so there's like, there's gigs I'm really looking forward to. And then uh, that's about it. And more of the same next year. I'm going to try to release like a new album that I recorded like a year ago that I need to make notes on. I'm trying to get that actually out and just do that. Yeah. Perfect. 
New York in the road. There you go. Yeah. Well, Paul Hooper, it was a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so Enjoy much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend here at Looney's. I appreciate it. it was All fun. right, man. Thanks. So there you have it, the very funny Paul Hooper. Uh, had a great time talking with Paul, definitely one of the good guys in the comedy scene, and wish him nothing but the best in the new year and his career as things move forward. Thank you to Eric and the folks at Looney's Comedy Corner for their continued support. And as always, thank you for listening to In the Springs. You can find the In the Springs podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow In the Springs on Twitter at RPL underscore Metajunk. Until next time, I'm Ryan Lowry, and we'll see you again right here in the Springs.